This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. I will be reading the scripture, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 8. In the Pew Bible, it's page 807. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for whom you shall come a ruler, who will be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and mirth. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamination, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let me start by praying for us.
I'll just check in. I expected to say, great job, kids, and talk about prayer, but um, this is a stunning text, so let me just pray. Father, as I hear this text read, I'm reminded of like the violence of our world. I'm reminded of what it meant for you to come, not just as a sentimental baby, but as a warrior and a king who would declare war on darkness. I'm reminded of what it means that that war is still raging, and you have won, you have defeated the enemy, um, and yet in these final days there is a a lashing out of darkness. So we have this beautiful hope and a ton of promise, and there's worship, and then there's just a lot of sadness. And so, God, I just pray over us where we identify uh, somewhere between those poles of worship and deep, deep sadness. And maybe those aren't two extremes. Maybe they go uh, directly together, that people find opportunity to worship you in their sadness, that as they encounter you and the world that we live in and experience the brokenness in real ways, we're, we're drawn to worship you. You are our only hope. Apart from you, the kind of death and destruction in this passage is all there is. So would you come and help us, God, give us hope, minister to us, make us sober-minded people that also are a joyful, happy people, that we could engage a text like this for all that it means and could stand um, kind of whole and honest and um, open. So I don't know where my brothers and sisters are or how they encounter a text like this, but would you speak to them, I pray in Jesus' name, as we look at this word. Amen. 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 Wanted to say, hey, great job, kids, but it didn't feel like you should say that after you just read about this death and destruction. Um, but kids, you did do a great job. And Stephen, thanks for leading us in time of prayer. If you're new with us, we're trying to practice corporate prayer together, and most of us aren't used to something like that. We're used to people praying over us like I just did, which is totally appropriate and is a really healthy thing for a community to experience. But there's something about us participating in prayer together as a people, and so We're just experimenting with different ways to do that. And so if that felt uncomfortable, if that was like a a breath of fresh air for you, either way, our hope there is that you get comfortable kind of sharing your heart with God and not just having someone else tell you about God, but you actually talking to him. And so Stephen, thanks for leading us in that time. We'll we'll, um, keep experimenting with that as time goes on. I'm, I'm eager for us to be a praying kind of people because this text puts in front of us um, like cosmic things. Uh, I don't know how you encounter a text like this. It's pretty familiar, maybe, if you've grown up around church or even just in our culture and community this time of year. Uh, Maybe there's things on TV you've seen with cartoons with wise men that are on camels and they come and follow the star. And there's lots of opportunities in our culture to kind of encounter this story. And yet when you read it here, it, it reads just a little bit different than a cartoon. You see there's all kinds of violence and there's all kinds of angst and there's deception and there's... Um, a huge clamor around this person, Jesus, who was born. And that's actually the spirit by which I want to engage this text. And so um, I, there's lots of ways we could go. Actually, this week it was fun to pray for you and ask God, hey, what, what is the most important thing for us? And uh, there's lots of the rabbits that we could chase, to be quite honest. I don't know if you know, but tomorrow is this moment. And some are calling the Christmas star. Have you heard this on December 21st? There'll be a couple of planets that align, and it will appear to be this beautiful star. And so I'm sure this morning... All across our, our world, people are talking about that as evidence of Christ coming. And I don't mean to like disparage that at all. I think the heavens do declare the glory of God. But I actually don't want to spend time trying to date this passage with comets or other 
times that planets align. I don't want to use astrology to give you confidence about this text. We could chase stars there. We could also talk about things like frankincense and myrrh and gold and what they represent. There's lots of kind of temptations in this passage. So I thought about Odysseus in that that, um, Greek story where he ties himself to the mast so that when he hears the sirens on the cliff, he doesn't steer the boat that way. And there's like sirens screaming at us. Some things are sentimental. Some things are actually saying, hey, you could believe this if you could find evidence in science and astrology and the way the stars have kind of aligned. You might actually have confidence in a passage like this if you could date it appropriately based on when Herod died and when the stars were. Maybe that's how you actually have encountered a text like this. And I think there's good use for that. I think those are really helpful. But it's actually not the direction that I want to go this morning. Not because I don't think there's good scholarship there, but because I don't actually think that's what you most need. When we look for evidence or supernatural or or natural evidence for supernatural things, though immediately it might make us feel smarter or better or give us confidence, I think sometimes it actually binds us up and then backfires on us. Here's the deal. Christianity is a supernatural religion. There are things that you cannot explain any other way except with the good news that this passage proclaims that God broke into our world. What we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is this beautiful promise that Messiah that was promised to the people came, but he was more than just a man. And last week we understood that it had to be more than just a man. Jesus had to be more than just a man so that he could do what no man could do for us, which was die for our sins, which is what his name Jesus means. And so for God to come and be among us, which is what Emmanuel means, we needed one that was both human and divine. So we're actually not looking for natural explanations to this supernatural text. And let me just kind of spoiler alert, Matthew's going to walk us through a ton of historical accounts of supernatural events. You'll see healings. You'll see multiplication of bread. You'll see calming of storms. You'll see lepers that are cleansed. And you'll even see Jesus say things like, your sins are forgiven. And what we're meant to do as we read Matthew's gospel is stop and say, what kind of a man could calm a storm? What kind of a man could just speak and the waves stop? What kind of a man could touch someone and then be healed? What kind of a man could could pray and multiply bread for thousands? What kind of a man could say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. This is the case Matthew's making that you needed more than just something that could be explained naturally. You needed supernatural help from the outside. So so Matthew actually continues on what he's been doing in this opening to put in front of us the legacy of Jesus or the genealogy of Jesus, the background of Jesus, so that we're ready for the next chapter to encounter him as the promised one of God who would come to rescue us from all of our sins. So, so man, we can talk about stars. I think it's actually fun. I would chase several rabbits this week, and if you're into that, I'd love to give you some resources. There's some cool stuff to think about the way God actually used stars to kind of get people's attention, but, but the point that Matthew wants to make is this is God himself come to us, the supernatural breaking into the natural. This is a miraculous conception of virginity and now birth, and what you see is you must deal with God for who God is. This is not just a natural little baby who was born in sentimental ways. This is a cosmic king that you have to do business with. And actually what we'll see in this text is there's only really two responses. One either of worship that the the wise men embody or one of war, which is what Herod embodies. To put Jesus forward as the Messiah, the coming king, the one that you need to do business with puts you in a situation where this morning you have a choice to make. Will you worship this cosmic king 
for who he is and what he claimed and, and look to him to offer you what he promised to? Or will you go to war with him? Will you continue to fight for your own kind of approval, your own kingdoms? Will you cling to things that you can build and manufacture? Will, will you resist this Messiah King Jesus? That, that actually is what the text puts in front of us. And so, so, man, whatever sermons you've heard, I think they've been really useful this morning. My burden is that you would see that Christmas is actually a declaration of war. Now, maybe you're going like, come on, dude, like, it's Christmas time already. Like, you've poo-pooed on the Christmas star, and now you're saying Christmas is about war. Like, can't you just lighten up a little bit? And I promise I'm not trying to be melodramatic when I say this. Now, I do tend to be a glass half empty or maybe glass is probably poisoned kind of guy. That is kind of how I see the world. That's true. Not when it comes to your hope or reconciliation. I have tons of hope for you, but I've been around long enough to know it normally gets worse before it gets better. And so I just kind of encounter the world that way. That's, that's true of me as a personality. But that's not what's driving me to say this morning that, that Christmas is the declaration of war. I think that's what this text puts in front of us. You see the first people interacting with Jesus apart from his parents. And you see these two responses, one of worship and one of war. And I think in that space, we're invited to ask a question about how do we see Jesus? There's an unavoidable conclusion here that you must wrestle with. And so that is my main point, that this Messiah King comes and announces the coming kingdom of Christ, and then you have to either worship or declare war on this King. And that's really my main point. I have several kind of sub-points to back that up, but I want to just walk through the text and kind of show you that. So look with me in chapter 2 of verse 1. If you've closed your Bible, it's on Matthew chapter 1. It's on page 807 in that pew Bible. What I want you to pay attention to as we get started is, is the difference between these wise men who were pagan astrologers, maybe they're kings, maybe they're wealthy, maybe they're scientists. There's some, some question about where they come from. Again, I don't think that's super helpful. The point is you have people who saw something in the heavens, tried to make sense of it on earth, and went looking for a king. And then you see a, a kind of faux king, a, a, a king that had been put in place by the Roman government. You see Herod who, who was grasping for power. You see his response to this king, Jesus. So let's just look in verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, which is where you would go looking for a king, right? If you're coming look to Israel to look for a king, you would go to its capital city, to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so these wise men would have been familiar with Old Testament prophecies, places like Numbers 24 that talked about a star rising in Israel. And this one would actually be eternal. This one would actually have more than just a man could do. So they, they've heard these prophecies. They see something in the heavens. And again, what Matthew wants you to do is not try to date Halley's Comet or the collision of other planets. He wants you to know that God is validating the birth of his son in supernatural ways, in ways that get these kings' attention so they want to come and seek and check it out. So, so they come to worship him, they say. Well, now when Herod hears this, right, one option is to worship. The other one, it says he was troubled. And this could be translated like stirred up or shaken. He is cut down to the core because here is a rival king. Herod is known for his brutality. He would kill one of his own wives. He would kill several of his own sons. He actually decreed at his death to kill someone in every family in the town that he was in so that everybody would be mourning upon his death. He's that kind of ruthless man. 
And he was known to build amazing things. And he actually kept peace in that city for that time through this kind of corrupt, overt, oppressive power. So he has a really mixed understanding. Right? He has power, but it seems really fragile. He's paranoid, and he's actually on the hunt all the time. And so the wise men see this, and they want to worship. Herod hears this, and he's troubled. And it says, and all of Jerusalem with him, right? So he assembles the chief priest and the scribes. It's not just for royalty, right? This is for everybody else as well. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and they inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they go back to the scriptures, and they told him what's in Bethlehem of Judea, because it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, this is verse 6, in the land of Judea are, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. And that actually goes on to say, and he is from old, from ancient days. There's a threat to Herod in this pronouncement that a king would come, right? It's a rival king. Even the genealogy would be this declaring of war on Herod's throne to say, here's the rightful son of David coming now being born, right? He wants to take out this king. And you've seen this in movies over and over again where there's a threat to the throne and the attempt is actually to wipe it out. So that's, that's the setting. That's where we start. In that space, you see this rival king is shaken. These prophecies have been kind of unmistakably tied to Jesus. Some choose to come and worship him and some are looking at an attempt to destroy him. And you should just stop for a second and go, now what makes such extreme responses to this little baby, right? Far from this little bitty sentimental baby, what you see is really extreme responses. And so maybe in our culture in these days, you're tempted just to let Christmas pass by as a sentimental thing and you exchange some gifts and you get some stockings and you sing some songs and then you move on to the bowl games that are going to happen and you look forward to the first of the year. And it happens for you, but it happens sentimentally. And so maybe you're kind of struck by such an extreme response from these wise men and from King Herod. Have you ever been around somebody where you say something or do something and it elicits like a, a way more intense response than you thought? You thought you were just making a suggestion and they like freak out and the emails start rolling and like all these things start happening. You realize, oh man, this was not just like a comment about a situation. This meant way more to you than it did to me. When Herod has this kind of violent response, we get clued into the idea there's just a lot going on in this passage. And so I just kind of wrestle with, okay, what would make the difference between the wise men, right? Because maybe they could be threatened too. Here's a king, or he's a rival king coming into the world declaring that he rules and reigns cosmically. So, so maybe they would feel threatened too. Why is their response so different than Herod's? This is what I get to do during the week. Right? I just get to pray and think about this. And I kind of came to a place where I don't know if this is all of it, but, but I wondered if the difference becomes what they're looking for. I think the wise men were looking for something tied to hope, fulfillment. They were longing for something. I think Herod was trying to protect something. Here's the wise men saying, we're looking to the stars, we're looking to prophecy, we're searching for something. There has to be more. And Herod is holding on with all he's got to his kingdom, trying to protect something. Okay, now put yourself in those shoes. How do you encounter Jesus? And maybe you go like, yeah, I'm in that third category. I just let it pass. I don't even care. We'll get there in a second. Between worship and war, 
And I wonder if you could let yourself be kind of a both and and not, not an altogether either or. I wonder if there's places where you're looking for the Messiah to come and to heal and to grow and to, to touch you and to help you and to forgive you and to encounter you. But maybe there's other places in your life that you are protecting, that you actually don't want his rule and reign. Because he would come and say, hey, well, to your resentment, you have to forgive. To, to your money, you have to steward that and be generous. To your sexuality, I actually own your body. I created you. With your marriage, with your relationships, with your job, with your resources, maybe there's places where you find like, okay, this is mine. Jesus, you're not welcome here. I'm going to protect this from you, and I'll long for you to come and help me when it comes to my anxiety, when it comes to my job search, when it comes to how I'm praying for my grandkids, when it comes to what I'm thinking about my ailing body and how I need your help there. I'll, I'll invite you there. I'll look for more there, but I'm going to actually protect myself from you in other places. Hey, just, just a thought for you. As you think about this cosmic king, because I think Jesus comes declaring war against the kingdom of self, against the kingdom of darkness, against sin and death, against the world. Right? He comes to declare that kind of war, and that's the world that we live in. And maybe there's places where you unknowingly or maybe aggressively have welcomed or pursued things that actually are keeping you from him or that he feels like a threat to. Where is Jesus a threat to what you want rather than an invitation to healing and redemption and, and restoration? Could you just stop for a second and think in your life? Think about last week. Think about where you got upset, what you prayed about, where you resisted, where, where you felt tempted, where, where you got overwhelmed. And I wonder if you could trace that back to where you were asking for God to break into your world to help you versus where you were protecting something. I think Herod wants to protect while these wise men are, are looking for something. And again, it would be a threat, right? You don't have the option of just having this neutral, sweet little baby who's born. This is a, a statement that the rightful king is coming, so all other kings must bow. Think about the movies you've seen, like where the White Witch with, with Aslan or, or the Sheriff of Nottingham with Robin Hood, right? You have these faux kings or queens who are ruling, and then the real king comes. Right? And those, in those places where King Richard actually comes and the sheriff of Nottingham freaks out. Right? Right? The, the Aslan is coming and the white witch freaks out. In those moments, what you see is the real king is coming and Herod begins to freak out. I just wonder if you have permission to be honest about subtle ways in your life where you actually are resisting. Right? So they were looking for something. Herod was protecting something. But Jesus actually comes to declare war. And then maybe we'll just go to the third option. Or maybe you say, all right, hey, I don't want to do either one of those. I don't even care. I think what Matthew does in the rest of the text is because to prove to us that you have to care. <laughs> he kind of puts in front of us, like, this is not just a normal baby. Let me give you some evidence that you have to actually process who he is and what he means. I think the way Matthew kind of argues with the prophecies and cosmology and typology, even eschatology, isn't that fancy? Where, where we'll go through his cosmology and prophecy and typology and eschatology, and all those ologies, all those huge words, Matthew's putting in front of us a case that you don't have the option just to ignore this baby Jesus. So look with me in verse 9. We'll pick up 7 so we don't want to skip anything. So uh, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Again, not to learn, not to worship, but so he could go to war. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him 
to me or bring word to me that I too may go and worship him, right? There's this massive deception. You think about Sheriff of Nottingham and you think about the white witch, how they traffic in deception to hold on to power. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's what they had been looking for because it was pointing to the one that the star was pointing to. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, in just a couple of verses, what you see here, Matthew wants you to see there's a cosmological in breaking through the stars to say this is not a normal kid. The star that they would have first seen that started their journey. And then even the way he's careful to say in verse 9, the star is moving. It's actually leading them. There's no explanation for that except a miraculous inbreaking into our universe, which God the Creator has not just the right to do, but the ability in a whim to do. Matthew is saying, hey, the way this happened, the way they were led there, the way they found that home was only explained through supernatural means. Clue for you, this is not a baby you can ignore. right? And even dreams and these angels who give these warnings, right, for God to break through that way prophetically to them is to say, this is not just a normal little baby. Matthew simply wants you to see there's too much cosmological evidence for you just to kind of have a benign experience with this baby. You have to deal with him as, as something. So he goes from cosmology to prophecy. Actually, five times in these two chapters, Matthew will put in front of us Old Testament quotes to say, hey, this is what God has always been saying. So now you have thousands of years of prophecy and guarantee of God keeping his promise on the line in these texts. Matthew is careful, again, five times, and the other authors don't do this. Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience who would have memorized and known the Old Testament. So for him to drop these quotes and allusions is to signal for them, hey, this is the one that you've been longing for. This is the one that God planned to come and send. So, so prophecy backs this up. And he's going to make an effort here actually at typology, which is a, a fancy word. I did. It's a little bit of a stretch. I was trying to be fancy. I was trying to impress you with all of my ologies. Typology is where, where something represents something else, right? So Jesus is a kind of Adam, the Bible says. Right? So actually, the Genesis account reads real similar to Matthew chapter 1 with these genealogies. We didn't spend a lot of time there, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same language is used of the genealogies in the book of Genesis that Matthew starts his genealogy in chapter 1 with. He's trying to say to us, hey, Jesus is the new Adam. And we read in the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1 that he's the one coming in the line of the son of David. So so he's the fulfillment. He's the, the type of king that was promised to David, one that would sit eternally on his throne, right? So David is a type of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this one true king that was going to come. And then he's the son of Abraham, right? He's the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, the promise to Abraham that from your descendants would become one who would come and would bless the nations. And what you realize in these moments is Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. He's the one true king. He is the the one that's going to bless the nations. He's the one that, that humanity can actually be reborn through. And he's going to now press in in not so subtle ways to tell us that he is the new Moses. So look with me in verse 13. All this reference, and I'll go all the way to chapter 4 with the 40-day temptation in the wilderness to kind of remember the 40-year journey of the Israelites 
in the wilderness, Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the one that Moses said would come after him, a prophet like him. So he says this, and now there, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, this is verse 13, in a dream, and he said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And if you're a Jew in the first century and you hear the word Egypt, you think back to Exodus, you think Pharaoh, you think thousands of years ago when you were in slavery and in bondage for 400 years. And it's been silent now for about that long as well. So there's a ton loaded up in the idea that God would say to Joseph, hey, take your son to Egypt. It's where you go to escape trouble, where you encounter more trouble, and where you need to be delivered. So very, very clearly, very simply, very um, pointedly, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of even Moses, and beyond Moses, the people of Israel. He would be the faithful one who kept the covenant promises that God had given his people. Right, so he says, go, go to Egypt, Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And you would think about in uh, the story of Exodus with the babies and the Pharaoh who's going to execute all the infants of the male children. And you would go, oh, this sounds really, really familiar, right? And what Moses uh, pointed to Jesus actually fulfills. And Matthew just wants you to see that. And, and he rose, this is Joseph, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. But this king actually has no power. This, uh, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. And so Matthew just wants to say, hey, this has been the way it was supposed to be. There's a prophecy that out of Egypt, God would do something and so as Jesus gets ready to go down as a refugee and an immigrant to Egypt, the typology is beautiful that Matthew wants to put in front of us to say, hey, he's the truer and better Adam. He's the truer and better David. He's the truer and better Abraham. He's the truer and better Moses. You cannot avoid this little baby. The heavens are declaring that. The prophecy is declaring that. All of the typology is declaring that. And even where this thing ends, right? So eschatology is a fancy word for things that happen in the last days. And I use that word to represent what's going on with the nations gathering to worship. Because we see in Revelation 7, the end of days, God will gather all the nations around himself to worship in every tribe, tongue, and language. And it's the fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 60. It says the same Thing. And so to have the Magi come, to have the wise men come from afar, these Gentiles who represent royalty and nations, to have them come and worship Jesus, a Jew would understand in that moment, oh my gosh, it's happening. The Gentiles are coming to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah King. This is not a little baby in a manger that we do drawings of and have little cartoons about. This is the cosmic king who came to declare war that you either have to worship or fight against. Those friends really are your only options, right? And here's what is amazing about that. Even in this gathering of the Gentiles, what you realize is that this baby Jesus came to actually gather you. When I say he came to do war, understand this. He came to do war against sin and death and judgment and hell. He came to actually defeat your greatest enemy. He didn't come to fight you. He came to free you. He didn't come to destroy you and go to war with you and push you down and rub your face in it. He came to actually liberate you. He came to do war against your great cosmic enemy that, that Herod represents. And in that moment, what we realize is that Jesus came to fight for you so you could be forgiven and free so you could actually worship him. 
So you could actually give him your heart. So you could actually see him for who he is and turn to him and give all of your, not just devotion, but your entire life to him. Matthew's being really careful as he walks through this text. And we're not supposed to chase stars or chase imagery with frankincense and myrrh. I think we're supposed to go, this is a cosmic king that declared war. Makes us ask, hey, what, what are you doing with that, right? Because we said what you think about, what you need, what you're looking to, or what you're trying to protect shapes how you respond to something like this. So you're invited just to go, hey, what am I, what am I trusting in? And if we could just kind of land here, I think Herod represents for us the, the violent push against King Jesus. And he represents for you like in, in drastic measure, in drastic contrast, what the alternative is to worship, right? It's not just you get to do whatever you want sexually. You get to do whatever you want to with your money. You can treat people however you want to. That's not it. It's actually death. What Herod embodies, what he kind of articulates for us, what he actually shows us is that when you go to war with King Jesus, your only alternative is death and weeping. Because here is this king. We'll look in verse 16. Herod so threatened Verse 16, when he realized that he'd been tricked by these wise men, he becomes furious. Furious, goes into rage, and, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men when this was going to happen, right? So we have some dating there. But, but the point there is that this violent king is so hell-bent on protecting his own kingdom, he's willing to murder and then you think about, oh yeah, that is who Satan is. He's the father of lies. He is the great murderer. He is the accuser. The enemy of God actually embodies uh, cosmically what Herod embodies physically in this moment. And that was the fulfillment, it says, of what was spoken to the prophet, a voice of one heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And what's so beautiful to me, right, if you're a Jew and you read this, I think we miss some stuff. Maybe you have Jewish background. If you do, man, we need your help. But most of us are Gentiles and read this and go, yeah, yeah, cool. And we maybe sing a song about it. But a Jew would know that's a quote from Jeremiah 31, which is the new covenant promise that God's going to come and send one who's going to come and reconcile and rescue and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. So in the middle of this sadness and longing and weeping is the promise of restoration and redemption that Jesus came not just to defeat Herod, not just to kind of create an opportunity for you to make a choice. He came to actually make life possible for you. The full redemption of your sins, taking the punishment of your sin that you fully deserve. And remember, he went to war against sin, dying on a cross so that you could be reconciled and free. I think it's so beautiful what he puts in front of us because there's this beautiful invitation amidst the weeping and sadness. A sober understanding of the weight of sin, of what it looks like to rebel against God, right? You could choose to worship him or you could go to war with him. And that doesn't put you in a position of power. It puts you in a position of judgment, of weeping and loss and longing, right? Herod represents so many amazing things, right? There were people who would attach to Herod because of the power he promised them. Right, to be next to a king, even a delusional king who was on a rampage and you never know if he's going to kill you next or not, he still offered you some kind of power. He built beautiful things in the ancient world. He's known throughout history. Or you've read about him in books. right? So he's the kind of guy that we remember because of his power. And yet he had so much 
anger and hatred and violence and vengeance, you didn't want to get too close to them. And I thought in that moment, what you have is this really interesting mix the way sin is as well, right? Sin promises you something. It promises hope. It promises comfort. It promises power. It promises that if you pursue it on its own terms, then it will actually give you something that you need. And yet, it's delusional. It always bites you. It always turns around and harms you. It never actually delivers and gives you what it promises. So I thought about this cruel man, Herod, as a representation for what it meant to rebel against God. And instead of this faux power that he had that can be threatened, Jesus offers us real power that can't be shaken. The power actually that we see in the resurrection that even death itself could not defeat. And instead of sin promising to us what it can't deliver, right? To be close to Herod would to be promised to be in the palace and to have all kinds of comforts. And yet that whole kingdom was really shaky. Instead of promising something that it can't deliver, Jesus keeps the promises of God to give us what we most desperately need, which is the forgiveness of sins. And instead of trafficking in violence and in fear, Jesus takes our death upon himself to give us eternal life. Herod represents an alternative to worship. And in that is a warning for us. To go down that road actually doesn't end in like an alternative future where you get everything you wanted. It actually ends in death and destruction, right? The Bible is really clear that sin, though it promises comfort and rescue and identity, it actually gives you death. That's what happened in the garden. So we read about in Romans chapter 6, that this sin that Jesus came to do war against actually will kill you. It'll kill your soul, which is why Jesus had to come. It's why he was willing to come. And it's what the invitation is in front of us this morning to choose to do something with. Hey, will you worship him as the Messiah who kept all the promises of God, who all the stars were pointing to, who the prophecies were about, that we needed a better king, we needed a better father, we needed a new Adam, we needed another deliverer, and he's the one who came to offer us that Will you trust him as that for your salvation or or will you resist him? And again, to resist him is not a path of unfettered happiness. It's it's destruction. So, So we stop here in the sermon and say, the way that King Jesus came to do war was to die himself on a cross in our place to make this possible. Because the invitation this morning is not fix yourself, do better, try harder, get in line. It's to trust him. It's to do what these wise men did when they came to worship him and say, I've been looking for something, and Jesus, you are the one I've been looking to. And so that's an invitation to Christians and non-Christians. The reason why we're taking communion every week as a community is to remind ourselves to keep trusting. We get to a fresh reminder of the sacrifice of Christ to say, he is the one I'm putting my hope in. And so for an unbeliever, someone who's not yet trusted Christ, it's a new invitation to you to hear that Christ actually made a way for you to be forgiven and free so you could be reconciled to him. It's an invitation for you to trust him for the first time. But someone asked me last week, like, hey, pastor, will you do an invitation in the service? And what they had in their mind was kind of maybe something you're familiar with where the pastor stands up and we all stand in our pews and sing a song and only a handful of folks come forward who have some kind of big decision to make. And I said, man, I want to invite people every single Sunday. Like better than just one or two people. I want to invite everybody in the room every single Sunday to trust Jesus. And then from there to make a series of other decisions to commit your life to him. 
to, to surrender to him, to join the church, all the other things that would happen in one of those classic invitations. But the first invitation for all of us is to trust Christ. And this morning, as you consider trusting Christ, what you're trusting is that he's the king who died in your place, declaring war against your biggest enemy so you could be set free. And that should stir incredible gratitude inside your heart. So we have these little cups. If you don't have one yet, it's no problem. I'm going to give you a second to go grab one. The ones that look like a little chalice are gluten-free, and the ones that have this purple top are for those of us without gluten allergies. Um, we're going to try something a little different this morning. And so team, uh, hang on for a second. I think we're going to be okay. I haven't prepped anybody yet, but I'm going to give really clear instructions. Here's what we're going to do. Because I want us to do something different. Actually, what I dream for is when COVID's behind us, you actually physically stand up and respond and come forward. You would tear a piece of the bread off, and you would dip it in the cup, and you would take and eat. You would, you would practice receiving and this is significant for us. It's meaningful for us in this moment. But, but I long for everybody to physically respond. And then in that moment, too, I have folks who could pray for you and pastors who you could talk to. And that's still true today. When the service is over, you can come talk to a pastor if you have some questions or you want to be prayed for. There's other members in the room who would love to care for you. So I want to make that invitation possible. But, but I'm longing for the day where taking communion is something all of us stand up and do. And we do it when we're ready. We do it when we feel like uh, I'm in a space where I'm, I'm ready to trust Christ and my heart's full, and I'm, I'm moving towards him. So here's what I want to do this morning. Rather than me leading you through, now eat the bread, now drink the cup, Roxanne's just going to play and just give you some time. And you just on your own, as a follower of Jesus, just pray in your seat or maybe pray as a family if you'd like. And you can take your time when you're ready, remembering the broken body of Christ for you that is on the cross that he declared war against your biggest enemy. And so you just take the little wafer and you eat it. And then when you're ready, you take the cup and you remember that his blood was shed for you. This is not a cruel king who's getting something from you. He's giving his very life for you. And so you would drink that in remembrance of him, remembering what he did for you to make you whole and free. Let that stir worship and gratitude inside of you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take communion with us, but you could still sit in your seat and pray. You could ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. You could ask him to help you understand. You could ask him to help you with your doubts and unbelief. And he cares about you. You're in the room for a reason or you're watching online for a reason. Would you just ask the Spirit of God, to speak to you. You can just bow your heads. The reason why we're not going to um, kind of rush this is just to give you time to do with God whatever you need to. And then when it, when it feels like we're done, Pastor Jason will come back up. Uh, we'll give us a couple of minutes, and then he'll lead us in a closing song, and then I'll send us out with a benediction. But instead of me leading you through, just whenever you're ready, peel back that tab, remember the broken body, then drink the cup, remembering his shed blood for you. Let me pray. Take some time, and then Jason will lead us in a song in a few minutes. Jesus, thank you that in the declaration of your coming, there's hope for us. God, would you stir worship now in our hearts, God? I pray against any resistance in the room that would have us to go to war with you or to fight you or try to protect something of our own kingdom. God, would you break that down now because of your love? Scriptures say it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's, it's you showing us your love that actually compels us to trust you, Corinthians says. So would you actually now in this moment stir faith in our brothers and sisters, for those who are struggling to believe, for those who this season has not been sentimental at all, it's just been brutal, would you come now and speak hope over them as they taste and remember the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf? And God, would you stir worship in us as we do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.